We invite you to the text for this series of sermons, Solomon and the Queen, to 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. And I'll keep reminding you as we go through this, we are not just reading a historical narrative or portion of Scripture here. We're reading it with spiritual insight in the sense that we are looking at this as Solomon being Christ and the Queen being a sinner. That is our perspective on these messages. So it is a similitude in that sense. And I have given the definition, you might remember, of a similitude as a comparative resemblance which I'm sure you've probably often heard preachers say that Christ is in the Scripture in types and shadows. Well, types and shadows are an expression of what a similitude is. It is a comparative resemblance. So as Christians, we don't just read a narrative or a story. We see Christ in Scripture. And if you're saved by God's grace today, it shouldn't be any difficulty at all for you to read this portion of Scripture. And see yourself in the position of this queen and to feel the things that are said of her when she came to Solomon. Because you have a similar experience when you came to Christ. So let's read it in that context, shall we? And when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to prove him with hard questions. And she came to Jerusalem with a very great train with camels that bear spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she was come to Solomon, she communed with him of all that was in her heart. And Solomon told her all her questions. There was not anything hid from the king which he told her not. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all Solomon's wisdom in the house that he had built, and the meat of his table, and the sitting of his servants, and the attendance of his ministers, and their apparel, and his cup bearers, and his ascent by which he went up into the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. And she said to the king, It was a true report that I heard in mine own land of thy acts and of thy wisdom. Howbeit I believed not the words until I came, and mine eyes had seen it. And, behold, the half was not told me. Thy wisdom and prosperity exceedeth the fame which I heard. Happy are thy men, happy are these thy servants which stand continually before thee, and that hear thy wisdom. Blessed be the Lord thy God which delighteth in thee to set thee on the throne of Israel, because the Lord loved Israel forever. Therefore made he thee king to do judgment and justice. And she gave the king an hundred and twenty talents of gold and of spices very great store and precious stones. There came no more such abundance of spices as these which the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. And the navy also of Hiram that brought gold from Ophir brought in from Ophir great plenty of almug trees and precious stones. And the king made of the almug trees pillars for the house of the Lord. And for the king's house, harps also and psalteries for singers. There came no such almond trees, nor were seen unto this day. And King Solomon gave unto the queen of Sheba all her desire, whatsoever she asked, beside that which Solomon gave her of his royal bounty. 
So she turned and went to her own country, she and her servants. And the justification for us approaching this text of Scripture in the manner we have is our Lord's own words, you might remember, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12 and verse 42, when he said, A greater than Solomon is here. And he was referencing this encounter between the Queen of Sheba and Solomon. Well, if our Lord is greater than Solomon, then how are we going to understand and know about him if we do not know about Solomon? So thus, the similitude here. And while the Bible says, John said, the last verse of the Gospel of John, if the whole world could not contain all that was written about Christ, if we had all that much of information. And really we have a small amount of information, don't we? In the New Testament Gospel writings about Christ and then in Paul's letters and so forth. But there's a multitude of information in the Old Testament that the New Testament unlocks. It's simply in similitudes. And so that's what we've been looking at here. First of all, is the similitude of Christ and Solomon. After we finish this, we will then go into the similitude of the queen and ourselves or sinners. But probably the most overwhelming thing or the greatest thing we've talked about so far is the very thing Solomon is remembered for, his great wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. And yet as we stand in awe of all of that, we then step back when we consider that Christ eclipsed that beyond what we can even comprehend. Because he was not just a man, but he was God. So let's continue on with that today, having covered Solomon's humility and wisdom. We'll see another comparative resemblance in 1 Kings chapter 4, a few pages back, and in verse 7. And this one is very obvious when you read this. It says in 4 and 7 that Solomon had 12 officers over all Israel, which provided victuals for the king and his household, each man his month in a year made provision. And then in verses 8 through 19, these individuals are listed and specifically named. So this was a, obviously under Solomon, we had great you see great organization and management skills and efficiency that probably no kingdom that has ever existed has ever had. We're not talking about how great the kingdom was, how many people were in the kingdom and you know the quantity of stuff. That's not the greatness of Solomon's kingdom. The greatness of the kingdom was that it had a great man over it, full of wisdom and knowledge and understanding that could implement things based on that wisdom and knowledge and so forth that nobody else could do. So, 12 men, 12 officers, who provided the substance, the victuals, the food or whatever for a month at a time for Solomon and all the household. So they made provision for, they served under, and everybody else served under them in that regard. 
Well, it's pretty obvious what we're getting at here, isn't it? Christ had 12 apostles, did He not? And they, they served a similar function. And we're not talking about just providing food, which they did do that. We read in the Gospels many times that uh, they would go into the city to buy bread, or, you know, in the case of feeding the 5,000, who had food, what would they be able to do? Uh, Christ questioned to Nathaniel, I believe, on that, or what have you, and so forth and so on. So that was a very minor part. This was the major thing these officers did was in a physical sense, providing the substance, the eat, the drink, the organization of that a month at a time. But of course, Christ chose 12 apostles, and it was not so as they could book him motel rooms or provide his meals for him. He had a greater design, didn't he, for that? And it was of a spiritual nature. Turn with me, if you would, to Luke's Gospel, the sixth chapter. And we'll rehearse this again and make a comment about it and then press on to the next point. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 6, beginning at verse 13, we're reading this account rather than Matthew's because there's some wording here I want to point out specifically. In verse 13 it says, And when it was day, he called unto him his disciples, and of them he chose twelve whom he named apostles. Don't make the mistake of thinking that there were 12 disciples and thus 12 apostles. The apostles were disciples, but all not all disciples are apostles. There was a great group of disciples, and of the disciples, he chose 12 to be an apostle. Today, if you're a follower of Christ, you're a disciple, but you'll never be an apostle. Some people claim to be apostles, they're not apostles. But again, out of the group or multitude of disciples, however many they were, Jesus chose 12. And we would say, again, this was of his own will, his own accord, God's own predestinated and determined degree to choose 12, and that those 12 would be this 12. <laughs> That's all, all God's doing in that, and we need to acknowledge that. So... No mistakes. It was not at random. Christ didn't choose anybody wrongly. Even Judas Iscariot was certainly not a mistake. Christ knew who he was choosing. And then the names of these apostles are listed beginning with their verse 14 through verse 16. Now we go to Matthew's Gospel in chapter 10. And the choosing can be read there also, but what we want to point out there is that after the choosing, in verses 1 through 4, we're told what their function was. And as I said, it was a divine function rather than a physical function. Jesus' objective was advancing His kingdom. And these twelve were the primary individuals, first and foremost, that Jesus chose, used, and commissioned to do that. In fact, we would say to you and remind you, these twelve are the foundation of the church that Jesus started. Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone, of course, and the head of the church. 
But the Bible tells us clearly in Ephesians that he set some in the church first apostles. So this is the first foundation. In verse 5, notice this. These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles and into any city of the Samaritans. Enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then there are many other things said in the following verses. In fact, all the way through this chapter, it is said through verse 42 things concerning what they could do, couldn't do, would do, would experience, etc., and etc. So while Solomon's officers provided physical things and were engaged in the physical provision for Solomon and those of his household, the Lord's twelve apostles were divinely called, divinely empowered, and were on a heavenly or divine mission, preaching the gospel. But again, a direct symbol to their twelve officers and twelve apostles. The next point we want to direct your attention to is the fact that Solomon was remembered for building the temple. The temple. Remember that in the days of Moab, God gave instructions for a tabernacle. Remember that? It was portable. It was moved about and so forth. And, and various things happened concerning the tabernacle up until the time of Solomon. But there was no permanent place of worship. That is, a house. Jerusalem was a place. Indeed, and the king resided there as David did. Saul before him resided in a particular place. But there was no permanent place of worship until Solomon would build the temple. Now some history is in order here. But let's first begin with uh, 1 Kings chapter 5. And we'll begin, there's several ways we could approach this as far as an order but we'll approach it in this manner. In chapter 5 of 1 Kings, verse 4 and 5, we read these words. It says, But now the Lord God, Lord my God, hath given me rest on every side, so there is neither adversary nor evil occurrence. This is Solomon uh, speaking here as it says in verse 2, Solomon sent to Hiram saying. So he's acknowledging something. All right? And behold, I purpose to build an house under the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord spake unto David my father, saying, Thy son, whom I will set upon thy throne in thy room, he shall build an house under thy name. So probably if there were two things that stand out about Solomon, the first would be his wisdom, of course, that God gave him that special gift. And the second would be he's known for building this temple, this elaborate temple that would be the first temple in Jerusalem, not the last, of course, but a very elaborate structure where the people of God would come to worship their God in successive generations. 
until the enemies, of course, destroyed it, etc. And that's another story. But let's go back to 1 Samuel chapter 7 for a little bit of history about this. Solomon has just made mention here that his father David knew about this. Well, David not only knew about it, it goes much deeper than that if you're familiar with the Bible and the Bible story. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, and in verse 12 and 13, we read these words, and the words we're reading are the words of Nathan the prophet, who you remember was God's prophet in the days of David's reign, and God would communicate what he had to say to David many times through Nathan the prophet. In fact, you remember David's sin with Bathsheba was exposed to David through and by Nathan the prophet. So Nathan is uh, relaying this uh, unto David here. You can look at verse 4 and 5 where God tells Nathan this and tells him to deliver it unto David. And this is based on David's desire. Well, let me put it back up. It's based on David's idea as well as desire to build the Lord a house, a temple, which is all well and good. Here in verse 12 we read, And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So, it was not meant or intended by God that David would build the temple. But he revealed unto David, it's a good desire, but I didn't ask you to, so I don't want you to, but I am going to do it through your son. Well, what did David do? In the meantime, this brings us to another very important point. Yes, David was not to build it, but David did assemble the materials for his son to build. So he was engaged in it indirectly, even though he did not build it. And for this account, and I'm going to do a rather lengthy reading here, but I think the reading will emphasize the point, and that's why I'm going to take the time to do it. Let's go to 1 Chronicles, the 28th chapter. 1 Chronicles and chapter 28. And just keep the thought in your mind of what we're dealing with. David wanted to. God said no. But your son shall. And I read you the scripture. Solomon acknowledged that. He knew he was supposed to do it. And he did do it. We'll read that in a minute. But in the meantime, here's what David did. And I'm going to make a point on this. It's going to be kind of a sub point. Of Solomon building the Lord's house. And Christ built the Lord's house. So let's just read this. And I'll make a few comments along the way. But just kind of absorb this if you will. David assembled all the princes of Israel, the princes of the tribes and the captains of the companies that ministered to the king by course, and the captains over the thousands and captains over the hundreds, and the stewards over all the substance and possession of the king, and of his sons with the officers and with the mighty men, 
and with all the valiant men under Jerusalem. So he has quite of an audience here. Multitude of people, high and low. Then David the king stood up upon his feet and said, Hear me, my brethren and my people. As for me, I had in mine heart to build a house of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord. And for the footstool of our God, and hath made ready for the building. Several things in here I'm going to bring out in a moment. Pay attention, see if you catch it as we go through here. Alright? He had it in his heart. It was not for him to do, but hath made ready for the building. But God said unto me, Thou shalt not build an house for my name, because thou hast been a man of war, and hast shed blood. Howbeit the Lord God of Israel chose me before all the house of my father, to be king over Israel forever, for he hath chosen Judah to be the ruler. And of the house of Judah, the sons of my father, he liked me to make me king over all Israel. And of all my sons, for the Lord hath given me many sons, He hath chosen Solomon, my son, to set upon the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. Again, it's very important here. You see God's predestinated and decreed will unfolding here by revelation. He chose David. David had about seven brothers. He was the run of the litter. God chose him. And, you know, you need to think of this when you read these things like this. Here God is sovereignly doing what God has determined to do. Predetermined. Predestination. It could be nobody else. It was not multiple choice. It was God's choice. It had always been God's choice. There was never anybody going to build the temple but Solomon. Okay? Just, just like nobody of Jesse's sons was going to be king except David. And on and on we could go. God chose Abraham. God chose Moses. I mean, God always chooses, by human standards many times, the least likely for obvious reasons that God might manifest His great power in them. So again, let that encourage you today. We're digressing a little bit. You may feel like nothing. You may feel like you're worth nothing. You may feel like you cannot be used for nothing. Well, if that's the way you feel, guess what? You're hired. You're exactly the type of person God wants to use. And only in that state does God use His people to do great things. Verse 6, He said unto me, Solomon thy son shall build my house and my courts. For I have chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father. Again, this is all God's sovereign doing. And it's very personal. Moreover, I will establish his kingdom forever if he be constant to do my commandments and my judgments as at this day. Now therefore, in the sight of all Israel, the congregation of the Lord, and the audience of our God, keep and seek for all the commandments of the Lord your God, that you may possess the good land and leave it for an inheritance for your children after you forever. And thou, Solomon, my son, know thou the God of thy father, and serve him with a perfect heart, And with a willing mind, for the Lord searcheth all hearts and understandeth all the imaginations of the thoughts. If thou seek him, he will be found of thee. But if thou forsake him, he will cast thee off forever. And those words are true to every human being whose ears that they fall upon. 
Take heed now for the Lord that chosen thee to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. And we might just mention here, this almost seems like sometimes Moses' words that he's passing on to Joshua, doesn't it? Very encouraging. Now note this. Then David gave to Solomon his son the pattern of the porch and of the houses thereof and of the treasures thereof and of the upper chambers thereof, and of the inner parlors thereof, and of the place of the mercy seat, and the pattern of all that he had by the Spirit, of the courts of the house of the Lord, and of all the chambers round about, of the treasuries of the house of God, and of the treasuries of the dedicated things. Let's pause. Solomon's going to be the builder. God was the architect. But God, as architect, gave the plans to David. That was David's part. That's what he's saying right here. God miraculously revealed and showed unto David. I won't get into how. It says by the Spirit. That's good enough for me. It's going to say something else here in a little bit or in another place. I don't know again exactly how God did it, but God, just like He told Moses the specifics on the mount of how he wanted the tabernacle built. Here again, he's telling David the specifics, the architectural design of how the temple is to be built. And as Moses passed that on, and it was done, so David will hand these blueprints to Solomon, and this is the way it'll be built. This is the way God does things. Verse 13, And for the courses of the priests and the Levites, and for all the work of the service of the house of the Lord, and for all the vessels of the service of the house of the Lord. He gave of gold by weight for things of gold, for all instruments of all manner of service, silver also for all instruments of silver by weight, for all instruments of every kind of service. Even the weight for the candlestick of gold and for their lamps of gold by weight for every candlestick and for the lamps thereof and for the candlesticks of silver by weight both for the candlestick and also for the lamps thereof according to the use of every candlestick. Let me pause again. I hope you don't find this boring. You know, we read sometimes about God's directions for building the tabernacle. Say, yeah, and yeah, and yeah, and yeah, and some of those things you don't understand. The thing you should be getting every time you read this in a verse is God is a God of exact detail. It was not randomly constructed because God has never randomly done anything. And when God gives instructions about how it's to be done, He will not accept random. So, this is not here to fill up the pages of your Bible. All the details are here telling us that God is a God of exactness and perfection. And He demands nothing less. It goes right back to when He told, as we said in Sunday school, Adam and Eve, you know, don't eat of that tree. The day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. God's not going to relinquish that. God's not going to bend that when He said it. And likewise here, everything must be tit for tot. So again, it reveals our God. Appreciate it as you read it. Okay? He did not hand them a 
sketched out drawing and say, do it however way it seems good unto you. God doesn't operate that way. Never has, never will. And that goes right down to us. What He's given us to do as individual Christians and as a church is pretty specific. We're not to turn to the right hand or the left in our service and obedience unto God just as they were not here. Where was I? Verse uh, about 8, 17, 18. And for the altar of incense, refined gold by weight, and for the gold of the pattern of the chariot of the cherubims that spread out their wings and covered the ark of the covenant of the Lord. And this said David, the Lord made me understand in writing by his hand upon me even all the works of this pattern. Now again, we're kind of going backwards here, but I'm showing you some more similitude. How did God give the law to Moses? He literally wrote it, the Bible says, with his own hand, his own finger upon tablets of stone, didn't he? David says here, the Lord made me understand in writing by his hand upon me even all the works of this pattern. This doesn't mean that God spread out the paper and took his hand and put it there. I don't know how God did this. But the idea is conveyed here, God did it specifically. It's just like he opened up a part of David's mind some way, somehow, and just wrote it all down there. I mean, if you would have it. That's a crude illustration, but that's about what this... By his hand upon me. So it was a divine revelation to David's mind. That in itself is outstanding, is it not? No, I don't want you to do it, but I am going to use you as the communicator of the architectural design to your son who will do it. Now this gets into something else. Would you be satisfied with that role? Well, you ought to be. Whatever role God gives us, we ought to be satisfied with. Not everybody could build the temple. It wasn't David's role. It was good desire. You may have a desire to preach or lead singing or do something. It may not be your role. It may be your role. But whatever your role is, it's an important role. It don't matter if you vacuum the church. That's an important role. We've all done that. What did David say? I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord. Any task in the kingdom of God is a worthy task. Okay? Mankind is the one that, that puts high priorities and privileges upon certain roles, but... Because I'm standing here minister, trying to minister to you today, don't make me greater than you by any way, shape, or form. It is an office. It is a position. And if God hadn't put me here, I shouldn't be here. But whatever position God has put us in, let us do it with all diligence and let us be content therein. Okay? David gives us a great example of this. David seems... I don't mean to diminish it, but he seems happy as a lark to be employed in what he's doing here. <laughs> I mean, he's just as content as he could be when David said, you know, when God said, nope, not you, but your son. And that's what this reading is all about. That's why I'm reading it all. So, divinely gave him the architectural design. 
David said to Solomon, his son, be strong and of good courage. Moses to Joshua again seems like, and do it. Fear not, nor be dismayed, for the Lord God, even my God, will be with thee. He will not fail thee, nor forsake thee, until thou hast finished all the work for the service of the house of the Lord. Wow. This brings us to something else. He's not only given him the design for doing it, but he's encouraging him in the sense that you will be able to do it, you will not be hindered in doing it, and you will complete the task. I mean, what positive reinforcement so that Solomon doesn't have to worry. Well, I wonder if I can do it. I wonder if I can get it right. I wonder if it... No, no, no. He's heading that off right here and right now. You will finish it. Behold the courses of the priests and of the Levites, even they shall be with thee for all the service of the house of God. There shall be with thee all manner of workmanship, every willing, skillful man for any manner of service. Also the princes and all the people will be holy at thy command. David's saying, not only am I handing you a blueprint, it's got the engineer's stamp on it that everything you need will be there and it's all going to come to pass. I kind of think of the scripture, it's like saying the zeal of the Lord of the host will perform this. That's pretty much what David is saying. God's not going to give you a blueprint that you can't do. As He has designed it, given it to me to give to you, that means it's going to get done. Again, going back to our personal service. We're all in some sense in that boat, are we not? Here you are, you are what you are because I've made you to be what you are to do what I want you to do. And you've got the blueprint, so let's get it done. Like I say, if God be for us, who can be against us? Can we know any failures if we're obedient to God's will? Absolutely not. Humanly, yes. In the service of God? Absolutely not. Let's read a few verses more. Furthermore, David the king said unto all the congregation, Solomon my son, whom alone God hath chosen. Again, it's about the third time we've read that, hadn't it? I mean, reinforcing if you didn't get it, uh, God chose him to do it. That would not have been pleasant if David had still been wanting to do it. He's more than happy to say, I'm not doing it. But God chose him to do it, and I'm happy with that. Is yet young and tender, and the work is great. No wonder he's encouraging him like he is. For the palace is not for man, but for the Lord God. You can do it, young and tender son. Because it's of God. And God wants it done. And God's called you to do it, so there will be no failures. There will be no setbacks. There will be no hindrances. There will be no shortage of material, no shortage of workers. God will provide everything to get it done. And in fact, Solomon's pretty much the overseer. Now I have prepared, and this is important, all with all my might for the house of my God, and the gold for things to be made of gold, and the silver for things of silver, and the brass for things of brass, the iron for things of iron, wood for things of wood, oink stones, and stones to be set, glistening stones and of divers color and of all manner of precious stones and marble stones in abundance. Moreover, because I have set my affection to the house of my God, 
I have of mine own proper good of gold and silver, which I have given to the house of my God over and above all that I have prepared for the holy house. Let's just pause there. I want you to get this point. David as king could appropriate riches of the kingdom for the house of God, which he did, as he just said. But then David even reached into David's own pocket and appropriated things also. So again, it's not just the giving out of somebody else's money, the kingdom's money. David made personal sacrifice of this also. His heart was in it. His heart was in the right place. And that goes right to us. You know, the church, we appropriate money to missionaries and certain causes and certain things, but again, are we appropriating somebody else's money? Well, in one sense, we are. It's the Lord's money. But where does it come from? It's meant to come from your pocket and my pocket. And we're to give as David did here in order that the church might give as we feel led collectively of the Lord. So call it the tithing principle, teaching process, or whatever, but those concepts are right here. Right here. Even 3,000 talents of gold, the gold of Ophir, and 7,000 talents of refined silver to overlay the walls of the houses with them. Let me pause again. Let me just say it like this. You know, that would be like me or uh, me encouraging the church to give to a cause that I personally would not give to. That'd be hypocrisy, would it not? Church, I believe we ought to send X amount of money to such and such and such and such. And yet, me personally not giving to that. You know, sometimes, we, do, we haven't done it here in a long time, but sometimes instead of just taking and giving money out of the church treasury, we might take up a special offering. Well, that'd be like me, okay, here's a cause, church. We need to take up a special offering for this and me not give anything. You, you see what I'm saying? That's not the way it's supposed to be done. Put your money literally, as it says, where your mouth is. If I want to encourage you to give to something, then I need to show you by example, right? I mean, or you, what have you. You know, if any one of you men, had, if something comes up, well, I feel like we ought to blah about something, other something, up. well, you ought to be the first one to put the money in. I mean, you know, lead by example, right? That's what we see right here. David is not only encouraging them to do it, which they're going to do, he's not only giving money from the kingdom, he's giving it from his own pocket. That tells you where his heart is. The gold for the things of gold, the silver for things of silver, verse 5, and for all manner of work to be made by the hands of artificers. And who then is willing to consecrate his service this day unto the Lord? Now there it is. Okay. He didn't ask them till he had already done it himself. Marvelous example. Marvelous example. Then the chief of the fathers and princes of the tribes of Israel and the captains of thousands and of hundreds with the rulers of the king's work offered willingly. Yeah, boy, you just you just love that. How can you not love that? I mean, those are those are that's just a precious phrase, you know. The king's work, the people offered willingly. That's us, folks. We're engaged in the king's work, and we're to give willingly. That's that's the cheerful giver, right? If you give and it hurts. You got a problem. 
If it stings when you let go of it, you got a problem. And I'm saying that because we're human beings. Satan loves to work in those delicate little areas of money. It's very easy to think, because we may do it weekly or monthly or bi-weekly, well, I've got to tie this much, got to figure that into my budget, rather than I am privileged to be able to give, blah, blah. It makes a difference. Should be a joy. And I'll tell you, there's no nothing any greater when when a pastor can see that principle employed by the people. When it's taught, it's not about the money. I don't care if it's a hundred dollars or a hundred million dollars. What's important is that it's done right. The blessing is in the motive, not in the amount. You believe that? You better believe it because Christ gave you a perfect example of it with the widow of two mites, remember? Okay, let's press on. And gave for the service of the house of God, verse 7, of gold 5,000 talents and 10,000 drams, and of silver 10,000 talents, and of brass 18,000 talents, and 100,000 talents of iron. And they with whom precious stones were found gave them to the treasure of the house of the Lord by the hand of Jehiel the Gershonite, Then the people rejoiced for that they offered willingly because with perfect heart they offered willingly to the Lord and David the king also rejoiced with great joy. That's what I'm talking about. Got to make another analogy here, can I? Where do you see something else like this? Pretty much the book of Acts right after Pentecost. I mean, everybody was given everything. I mean, what? You know, I mean, they did this back when they built the tabernacle with Moses, but after this, you see the same thing. Barnabas sold land, others did, and Sapphira and Aeneas tried to cut corners on it and didn't work out so well, did it? But here again, when God's people do what God has commanded to do and they do it with the right motive, you have opened up the floodgate of the windows of heaven for blessings. What a blessing. So, here David has done what? By example... Relayed to the people, I wanted to, God said no, but God allowed me to have to give me the architectural plans and to assemble the material, all to make it, you know, Solomon just walked into it and there it was and with all the resources to get started and get with it. It still took seven years, but he did it. Let me read another scripture about that. Can we? Let's go back to 1 Kings. 1 Kings 6, and we'll make our point and wrap this up for today. 1 Kings chapter 6 and verse 1. We read, And it came to pass in the 480th year after the children of Israel were come out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel in the month Ziph, which is the second month, that he began to build the house of the Lord. Okay. So there he starts in the fourth year of his reign. Of the materials that David has prepared ahead of time, he begins to build the house of the Lord. Verse 14 of that chapter. So Solomon built the house and finished it. And then verse 38. And in the eleventh year, in the month Buell, which is the eighth month, was the house finished throughout all the parts thereof. 
and according to the fashion of it, so was he seven years in building it. So, Solomon built the Lord a house. David was instrumental in preparing that. And we don't have time to even get started into the application to the Lord. But I'm going to tell you while it's fresh on your mind so you can be thinking about it and ready to go next time. Christ Jesus would build, quote unquote, the Lord's house, wouldn't He? And that would be His church. It wouldn't be a physical temple. It would be the church in the abstract form, which is not a building, but is a group of people. Where did Christ get the material to build His church? We read about calling the twelve previously in the previous point, didn't He? But He didn't just pick them out of the blue or pick them out of a crowd. He had somebody that made preparation before Him, the forerunner of Jesus Christ, John the Baptist. Not the guy, but the guy that preceded the King. We'll deal with that next time. I hope that whets your appetite. The reading was long, but I think very important to make some points there because if we understand again what it says about Solomon, how he came to do what he did, his greatness, his glory, and all of that, then again we can appreciate even greater that Christ not only was greater than Solomon, he built a much greater house than Solomon. And it's not a house made with hands. It is of a divine nature. It's His church. And He laid down His life for it. And we are employed in that service today and what a privilege it is. And I want you to see that. And I'll be the, do my best to point that out to you, Lord willing, in the next message. God bless this to your hearing.